Welcome to day two of season one finale week. It's episode 41 of the Web Joy podcast. I'm your host, Eddie, and in this podcast, we interview guests about their origin story and what makes them excited and joyful to be part of the tech community. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, An Unpopular View on Imposter Syndrome, with Curtis Eidensman. Welcome to another episode of WebJoy. I'm excited to have Curtis today here with us. Curtis, say hi to everyone listening. Hey, how's it going? It's a pleasure to be on the podcast, Eddie. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. So everyone can kind of get to know you. Let's start off and just say, hey, who are you? What do you do? Where do you work? Just kind of a a brief intro of who you are. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Curtis. I'm a software engineer based near Washington, D.C. in the United States. And I am a freelancer. Prior to freelancing, I started at Amazon Web Services. So I worked on a variety of services and products at AWS, both internal as well as external, and recently left my full-time commitment there uh, to do freelancing. And this gave me a little bit more control over my time, as well as my project choices. So I've been working with Gumroad a little bit asynchronously. I hope we get to talk about that later. And I also launched my first video course earlier this year, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, it's called Master the Code Review. And you know, in, this, in the spirit of like building in public and transparency, I like to share some numbers around it. Over like 900 students have decided to take the course. And like 30 organizations have purchased the team license. And a few companies have actually added it to their new hire, like internal training, which I'm pretty pleased about. Um, it, it went better than I could have imagined. I'm currently writing a book on the same subject of code reviews as well. It's cool to be able to sell something to individuals. But when you are able to sell something to a team, right, to a company, like that really must feel feel good. You know what I mean? Like you kind of just nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I was building, because I was talking about it a lot on my social medias when I was building it, and I had some people reach out to me and say, hey, I might want to purchase this for my organization or for my team. So I decided to make a, a team package option as well. Yeah, it's been good. And I'm, that's why I'm excited to really get into this book and start writing it as well. I love that different people have different ways of learning. So having different modes of communicating those same truths is is really exciting. Yes, absolutely. Yep. How did you kind of get into this, right? Like what kind of prompted you to say, hey, I want to get into tech. I want to program, start at Amazon. So like how did yeah. that all kind of get started for you? So as far as my journey into tech goes, journey to software engineering, it's pretty, it was kind of straightforward wasn't really a career change or anything like that. I studied computer engineering. Back in high school, I actually took some coding courses. We had some courses in Java. Had a really good teacher that taught it really well in high school. And when I got to university, I studied computer engineering. And so computer engineering is a little bit different from computer science in the sense that it focuses on the integration of hardware and software rather than strictly large-scale software development or computer science. So I worked a lot with... um, hardware description languages like Verilog, uh, some embedded systems work as well. So writing code that would be used on physical devices in the physical world. And it taught me a lot. But in the end, I ended up getting an internship with Amazon as a software engineer. And then after the internship, I was hired full-time at Amazon as a software development engineer. So I stopped doing the hardware stuff and just completely shifted over to the software side. Yeah, so that's my story. Nice. Well. I've been following you on Twitter for a little while now. 
And I, I read a blog post that you talked about how like started at Amazon, but you really should have never gotten that job. And that's so intriguing to me. So I thought, you know, let's unpack that a little bit. How did that go about? How did you get that job? Why did you feel like you shouldn't have gotten that job? What did that all kind of look like? Yeah. So you're referring to an article I wrote on my Medium, which was about two years ago. And it was recently discovered, probably a month ago, it was discovered by Business Insider. And so I worked with Business Insider to get that republished on their platform to reach a wider variety of readers. And yeah, the title is, it was a very eye-catching, it was my first ever article, actually. So like, (laughs) very like, clickbaity, like over the top, like headline. Because I, I had no idea if anybody was going to read this article. So it's like, <laughs> Amazon shouldn't have hired me. Like, <laughs> and I had like, in my Medium article, I had in The Quiet Place, there's like a, an infamous scene where he's like, puts his finger over his mouth, like, shh, like it's a secret or something. Because I had no idea if anybody was going to read this. And it ended up like, I think over 100,000 people have like read it at the time, which was way more than I ever imagined. So I learned a little bit about marketing that day. But... <laughs> But yeah, so that art, in that article, I kind of describe how like my perspective around that, like why I shouldn't have gotten the job at Amazon. So any software engineer who's prepared for a FANG interview, including Amazon, knows that you have to study leak code questions, right? You have to go basically go on leak code. And for months and months, you have to practice those coding challenges, those coding problems. And you need to study like the, the, the complex data structures, the heaps and the tries and the, and the graphs. And you have to be able to know and analyze some algorithms in time and space complexity. Now, a lot of these core concepts of data structures and algorithms, they're taught in computer science curriculums. And as I explained before, my background was in computer engineering. It was a very good curriculum and it taught me to think like an engineer. It taught me to solve ambiguous problems. But it didn't have those core classes just because it wasn't part of the computer engineering curriculum. So I kind of went into the interview for the internship. Um, This was back in 2014. Went into the interview and they were doing on-campus interviews. I'm not sure if they do that now, but I I got a couple of technical questions which weren't typical of what you would see nowadays on an SDE intern or SDE1 interview. And I got one on like bit manipulation. I told them my background, so they gave me some bit manipulation question. They asked me a couple of questions on hash maps. And then the rest of it was like leadership skills, leadership, leadership, leadership. And I did have some of those solid leadership skills and the technical questions I was able to answer as well. So I landed the internship. And then over the course of the internship, I was developing a Ruby on Rails project. And then I did well in the project and I was able to earn an SDE1 full-time offer. Now, I did earn the offer through the internship. I did do well. I mean, once you have the job, once you're in the door, it's kind of more so within your control in terms of, okay, I can put in more hours or I can take the extra time to learn something. I basically worked my ass off during that internship and got the full-time offer. The reason why I say Amazon shouldn't have hired me is because objectively, if I were to take the SDE1 interview, like while I was trying out for that internship or even after the internship, even after I graduated, if I had taken the SDE1 interview... There's no chance I would have passed that thing. Objectively, there's no, there's no way. And this is confirmed by my experience as an interviewer. I spent six years at Amazon. I interviewed many candidates. Um, just having a deep understanding of the interview process as well, I definitely would not have passed that interview and gotten into Amazon. So that's why it says Amazon shouldn't have hired me at the beginning. I love that because I think there's something to be learned there, right? Which is oftentimes it's easier to move upward in an organization than to go out and get an 
organization to hire you from scratch, right? Because you had gotten in the door as an intern, that allowed you to show what you were doing as proof that you could be a software engineer at Amazon. Whereas if you hadn't done that internship and you just finished school and then been like, all right, I'm going to get my first job, time to go for Amazon, you would have had harder questions because they would have expected you as an external hire to be at a higher level. Like they, So I think that's an awesome thing for people to keep in mind when they're thinking about how they want to go about their career and knowing like, hey, if you can get in the door somewhere through an easier doorway and then show proof like on the job, you can move up where you might not have gotten in the door just trying to go for that higher level position. Yes, I think there's something to be said there, definitely. I would like to emphasize, you know, that internship was definitely not like an easy thing. I would say it's different kind of skill set. Some people are really good at lead code questions, but, but you know, they're not very good at some of the soft skills and leadership skills that it takes to succeed on the job. So it's kind of a trade-off, right? So in my case, wasn't very good at lead code, but was very good on, on other on-the-job skills. And in other people's case, maybe they're good at lead code, but they're not good at those on-the-job skills. So that internship was actually very challenging. And over the years, I've mentored several engineering interns as well. So I know about the structure and how challenging it can be. And so not everybody makes it out of that internship with a full-time offer, as you can imagine. I'm not sure what the percentage is. I'm not going to throw out a number because it's probably changing all the time. I was talking about the differences between interviewing in tech as well as on-the-job skills. And I think my case brings up a broader discussion about interviewing itself. The tech industry as a whole has this whole lead code process, and they measure these specific skills in a live coding interview kind of way. Like many companies do this. It's not just Amazon. You know, it's Google, it's Meta, it's all kinds of different companies, right? And I think it brings up a broader discussion of, is that the right way to be interviewing people. I have some personal opinions about like what we could do, but everybody does. I think everybody at some level has an opinion on how we should be measuring candidates for these roles. There's been some changes. Like I think there have been different companies that are starting a trend of like avoiding those kinds of interviews, maybe going away from the whiteboard interviews, maybe going into like pull request type of interviewing, behavioral type of interviewing, those kinds of things. It's a good a good point, right? And it kind of creates two call-outs. Like one, if you're out there and you're interviewing and you feel like you're not passing interviews, like that doesn't mean you would be bad at the job. That just means you're having challenges with the interview process. So like, don't be discouraged by that. You may just need to hone up some of the interviewing skills or look for companies that have different interview processes that are more of what you would do in your day job. As companies, I totally agree with you. I think we need to do better there's different levels of like leak code where it's like a lot of what you do doesn't actually happen in your day job. And then you've got, I would put like glass door in this category, which is like, okay, you still do live coding, but it's more what you would do in the day job. And so like, for example, as a front end engineer, you're going to mess with like grabbing data from APIs and displaying it on screen during a 45 minute session. And it's like, well, you still have to code in front of someone, but you're doing stuff that you would normally do in the day job. It's not something you have to specially study for. And then, yeah, I think different types of things like pull requests and like how do people work in teams, like finding ways to dig into that stuff. So vital to how we work. I love that. Yes, absolutely. Well, cool. Um, You know, you were at Amazon and I know we deal with imposter syndrome a lot in kind of the tech industry, right? Did you encounter that there? 
how did that feel working kind of among Amazon? Yeah, definitely. I think um, in my case, and I kind of talk about this a little bit in the piece as well. In my case, I have kind of an unpopular opinion when it comes to like imposter syndrome. <laughs> so I, I typically like to drop the, the syndrome part of it, right? I like to look at it as, okay, maybe like I'm an actual imposter. And like in my case, I was objectively coming into Amazon without some skills that every SDE1 gets hired having, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm the only one that doesn't have these skills. So when I drop, and for me, when I was able to drop the syndrome part out of it to say, okay, maybe I really don't have these skills. Like I have to kind of objectively look at myself and reflect and say, okay, I am where I am. I have the skills that I have. I have the background that I have. Maybe I'm at some kind of disadvantages relative to my other peers, but I can take where I am and then recognize what I have to do to acquire those skills. And really, I think that's what it's all about, just having the self-awareness to say, hey, I don't know this right now, but I'm going to go out and learn that. Or I'm performing this way right now, but I'm going to take the feedback from my peers and my managers and, and that sort of thing and um, take that feedback in stride and improve any way that I can because I want to stay here, right? And I want to, ex- and I want to excel here. Um, so that's kind of the attitude I took in that situation. So you worked at Amazon for six years, then you moved on to freelancing. Obviously, you're enjoying being a software engineer. Kind of what is it that keeps you excited and interested working in this field? Yeah, that's a good question. Software engineering, back when I was in high school and going up through college, I really liked the problem-solving aspect of it and the creative problem-solving aspect of it. So no one developer or no two developers come to the same solution, right? Everyone has their own unique way to solve a problem. And just looking at the creative process, the logically creative process that each developer goes through and solving these different problems is very interesting to me. And the problems get even more and more interesting as you get better, right? You have, at first, you're thinking about edge cases and corner cases and those kinds of things. And then as you level up in tech, you start thinking about more of the business side of things, right? Um, You start noticing gaps in like a business in some business requirements or maybe something that they say they want like maybe the customer says they want one thing and then you have to kind of fill in the gap for them saying hey but what about this situation and those problems become much more collaborative collaborative between all kinds of different people like engineers product managers ux designers and it becomes you know the the problems get even more and more interesting and i like collaborating with humans as well like uh I think in the early stages of software engineering, you're pretty much always coding, but in the later stages, you're you're always collaborating with other people, and it's more about precise communication, whether that's verbal, uh, nonverbal, or written. No, that's that's fun. Like you said, as as the journey goes on, you get to do different things, and you get these different experiences, and it is great working working with people as well as code. One of the things that we like to talk about in this podcast is things that bring us joy. And I just want to say, hey, what's something that brings you joy? Maybe something you've been doing or a way you've been working for you. So when I became a freelancer, one of my main clients has been Gumroad. Um, And so Gumroad is, put simply, it's a website, gumroad.com, where you as a creator can log on and upload files and sell them as a product. And that's kind of a simplistic definition. You can sell digital files like ebooks or videos, or you can sell physical items as well if you have, have your own way to ship customers' items. But very simple website. I say that in a good way. I think simplicity 
is beautiful, especially when it comes to products and engineering. But what's interesting about Gumroad and working with them is it's completely asynchronous. So I think in the past year that I've been working with them, I've only had four meetings <laughs> the whole time, <laughs> which is pretty unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it very much resembles working on an open, kind of like an open source project. We have like three modes of communication. There's like Notion, GitHub, and um, Slack. And that's pretty much it. Um, if you're a designer, you have Figma as well. So it's the, the whole thing is completely asynchronous. You know, you dive into the Notion and you figure out, okay, what's the highest priority task or project that needs to be worked on? And you kind of, like as an engineer, I have to be able to like scope it out, break down the tasks of what we need to do, and then, you know, involve whoever I need to involve. Maybe I have to reach out to a product manager to clarify something, or maybe I have to reach out to a designer to get something designed. And then I'm diving into the code and pretty much shipping authoring and reviewing GitHub pull requests to, to ship to this, this product. So it's it's very interesting, very interesting work-life uh, situation I have here. Nice. I think, what do you find challenging about that, right? Obviously, there's a lot of upsides for asynchronous, right? You get to work on your own schedule and, you know, get to zone in. But yeah, what kind of challenges have you run into? A lot of times, verbally, conversations can be hashed out a lot quickly, more quickly. And it's tougher to have to like write things down sometimes. Like if you have a very, and sometimes the pro- the problems that you're solving can be- get very complex, especially in software engineering, and the communication has to be very precise. So sometimes writing out maybe on a pull request, giving enough context, or maybe you're having a Slack discussion about some something that needs to be debugged, and you have to have very precise communication around everything, and that's difficult. I got into writing, especially writing on the internet, probably a couple of years ago. And that kind of opened my eyes to just how difficult writing can be. Most of the time when you write something, the first pass through, it's not going to be correct or precise or you're going to have to make edits. And so if, you, if all of your communication is writing, you have to write and then you have to go back and revise and revise and revise and then finally send. So I'd say that's been challenging, but it's also influenced a little bit of my growth as well. I think I've become a better writer because of this this process. Yeah, that's awesome. Because like you said, while it is challenging, I think it also helps shed light when you're having to analyze it, right? And yes. oftentimes when we're in a meeting, we can kind of spit things out that we only half know or half understand. And it's like when you're writing and you're making sure it's right and clear, it makes you question your own assumptions. So that definitely seems like something that would really help you understand things. And and if someone is like, wait, what did we say? Like, it's not lost in a meeting somewhere. Like, it's actually written down and they can go back and read it. Yes, absolutely. I, and this also reminds me, when I was at Amazon, Amazon has a very strong writing culture. So they have like a no PowerPoint rule. Like if you have an idea or something that you're proposing to a group of people, you're not allowed to use PowerPoint. You have to write a document. It has to be a one-pager or a six-pager because writing forces cl- that clarity of thought. You know, you cannot BS your way through a written document, but you can BS your way through a PowerPoint presentation or something like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. As we you know wrap up here, one of the things we always like to do is just as a community, we love to support each other and just wanted to know, is there anything that you're involved in or anything you've worked on that you'd like to share with the community that they, they might find helpful and want to check out? I mentioned earlier this year, I launched my first video course. It's called Master the Code Review. I think code review is a critical 
important subject for software engineers, software developers. Almost every software developer does this on a daily basis, yet very few people are talking about it. And so that's what motivated me to make this course. Um, that and you know my particular struggles with code reviews early on in my career. You know, I'd, I'd open up a pull request and I'd get like 50 comments on it, or like you know I'd, I'd submit another revision of that pull request, get another 30 comments on it, and then when I would look at code that people sent me to review, I didn't know what to look for or how to give good feedback. And over the years, especially at Amazon, I learned a lot about the ins and outs of code reviews whether that is the process that the code review process that the team is following, the code that an engineer is reviewing, or the code that an engineer is writing, and how to address such um, code review comments and feedback and those kinds of things. So I cover all of this. It's like it's a video course. It's about four hours worth of video content. And it's on Gumroad, of course. So very easy to, to find that and check that out. Awesome. Well, we'll include a link in the show notes. I know there isn't much content. I mean, there's blog posts here and there, right, about pull requests and code reviews and things like that. But yeah, I don't feel like I've seen much actual, like really in-depth content like this. So I think that's that's great. And anyone, if you feel like you need to step up your code review game, if you feel unsure or just like maybe you've only done open source projects and like you've never been in a company that's done those, you've always worked on your own or something like, there's a great chance to to learn how to collaborate with others. So definitely uh, encourage everyone to check that out. And uh, yeah, Curtis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure just chatting, getting to know you, your journey, uh, hearing about working asynchronously. I think that is such a huge thing in remote work, this ability for companies to start shifting to work in that way. And it's great to actually hear someone who is actually doing that and it's working well for. Thanks a lot, Eddie. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. I think we covered a lot of ground today and I really hope the the listeners will enjoy. Thank you for joining us for episode 41, an unpopular view on imposter syndrome with Curtis Einsman. You can find links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as a link to Curtis's website and social media accounts in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, help others discover it as well. Why don't you give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform and tag a friend or coworker that you think would enjoy this episode. Don't forget to follow us wherever you hang out online, or you can subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date. Thank you for joining us for season one. If you have three minutes, please take our short listener survey. You can find a link in the show notes and it will be invaluable while we plan out season two. Thank you for listening and have a great day.